The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers. Sorry, I would have been online earlier, but I was descaling my coffee machine and my Geeks and Beats Miracle Travel Mug of Traveling. I didn't think you needed to descale the Miracle Travel Mug of Traveling, but certainly want to do that for the coffee maker. Well, you want to make sure that the mug is uh, pristine for the coffee that you're going to put into it. And I have one of these very complicated robotic Seiko coffee machines that demands descaling every once in a while. So uh, it's it's been 40 minutes and it's still going through its sequence. <laughs> it actually has its own built-in sequence, kind of like a, an oven self-cleaning mode. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> after I don't know how many days it comes up and it nags you until it's a clean me. So uh, now it's, uh, it's, it's I'm not using the recommended descaler. I just put a whole bunch of CLR in there and hoping that's going to work out fine. I thought vinegar would have been just enough, thank you very much. Uh, probably, but, you know, I like my coffee and I wanted to be pristine. I wanted to be absolutely nothing but the coffee beans and and uh, the, 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 the glorious flavor that I get from them. You turned me on to Blue Mountain Coffee when I went to Jamaica. I brought some back. I should have brought a truckload of it because I can't find it anywhere. Isn't that good? I'm getting some Brazilian coffee uh, from someplace in the Amazonian jungle over the next couple of weeks, and I'm looking forward to that. The other thing, did I ever give you some of my civet coffee? Isn't that the stuff where the cat eats the bean and then poops it out, and then they actually make the coffee from that? Yeah, and they actually, I learned in Malaysia when I was there last earlier this month, that they actually refeed the uh, the pooped out beans back to the civet and they get it on the second time through. How does the civet feel about that? I, I have no idea. <laughs> See, here's what I don't understand is how did you discover that this was a good way to make coffee? Exactly. How, how hard up were you for your caffeine hit that you looked at the cat and went, all right, that'll do. <laughs> Here we go. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes and GeoCities, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. Michael gets his Apple Watch. And we'll tell you why it's not ready for prime time. And not necessarily for the reasons you might think. Meantime, we'll page Mr. Scott. NASA accidentally creates warp drive and blows Einstein's faster than light out of the airlock. Hipsters rejoice. 15 days worth of vinyl was sold during the 12 hours of Record Store Day this year. And proof Canada really does like Nickelback. We'll look at the statistic to back that up and offer you a solution to get the band's songs out of your head involving chewing gum. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. What do you think? I got it right here, my friend. Oh, uh, there you do have it. You, you, you know how many people have not received their Apple Watch yet. You know, the, the delivery date was supposed to be April the 24th, and a lot of people were getting, you know, delays of, uh, of, of two and, and three and four weeks, and some people have their delivery pushed back until June, but you have yours. It told me I wasn't going to get mine until June, which could have been the end of June for all I knew, and sure enough, I woke up uh, the uh, morning of, and it said, it's on its way, baby, and sure enough, it arrived 30 seconds before I went on TV, so we did a live unboxing on the air. Okay, so that's a, the 42 millimeter one? No, 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 no. I've got the dainty wrist, remember? So I went with a 38 millimeter. Oh, that's right. And you can see the 38 millimeter actually fits my wrist just perfectly. Yeah. 
if you had ordered the 42, you probably would still be waiting. Okay, well, that's rather interesting. I'm, I'm glad you have dainty wrists because now we can talk about it. The most common question I've been getting is, well, what the hell's the point of an Apple Watch in the first place? And when you get the thing and there's the Apple Watch app on the iPhone, it automatically synchronizes your iPhone notification settings to your Apple Watch. And so I was getting over the last 48 hours in notifications for everything, LinkedIn requests, you know, people replying to Twitter items. And I found it really quite distracting. What I think the solution is, is you actually dial back the notifications on the watch to just the ones that are critical, like your text messages, your phone calls, your email. That way, you actually don't deal with all of those Facebook and social media type things right away so that when you do, you deal with it all at once. So instead of piecemeal bit by bit as the less important things come in, you deal with them as they come in. You wait until there's a collection of replies necessary on Facebook or something. And then you use the actual iPhone because the watch itself, that's that actually doesn't even have a Facebook app. Now, can you when you talk about dialing back the notifications, do you dial back your notifications on your phone or on your watch? The companion app for the watch on the iPhone allows you to customize which notifications get pushed to the watch itself. Okay, that makes sense. Because if you had to go to your phone, I mean, I rely on my home screen on my iPhone to tell me what I need to know, what notifications came in. And if I wanted to stop being so annoyed by all the stuff coming into my watch. I have to disable all the notifications on my phone, which I do not want to do because they're there for a reason. Right. So when you get an important notification on your watch, you then grab the phone to actually deal with it in a larger way. Although you can do a fair amount on the watch itself. It's got Siri built into it. Right. And the voice recognition on it is pretty good. Um, once you actually grab the phone itself, you go, oh, not only do I have this text message I want to reply with in detail, but I see I've got seven links. LinkedIn requests and 14 Facebook messages, now's the time to dedicate to the unit. So while people have been fearing that the Apple Watch has been designed to get you more addicted to technology, it actually allows you to set the technology aside and not let it bother you when it's not important. Because you're not always reaching for your phone. Exactly. And when you do get a notification, you're the only one who's aware of it. The, um, the haptic touch, as they're calling it, or the taptic touch, as they're calling it, is so discreet that the person sitting next to you has no idea you've just received a notification until you turn around and look at your watch, and then you look like you're in a hurry to get somewhere else. Mm. I think this would be very useful to me because I was uh, chastised the other day for constantly handling my phone during a meeting. Exactly. So the idea here is that you're not using your Apple device more. You actually end up using it less so long as you're judicious about what you allow to show up on the little screen. Okay. So do you like it or are you still learning how to use it? Um, as a nerd who likes first generation technology and wants to be on that cutting edge, I'm enjoying it. But I'm recognizing that being an early adopter has its significant disadvantages in addition to the cost associated with it. I dropped 500 bucks on it. And we know with Apple products that Apple products don't get cheaper. They just add more features to them. Right. That I know that there is no Facebook app. So when the Facebook notification pops up, there's nothing I can do with it other than grab my phone. Yet, 
But down the road, there will be more and more features added to this thing as it goes. And the big question becomes, do they keep adding features to the point where it bogs down the device? Much like your older iPhone can't use the newer apps and the newer operating system. So at some point, there's going to be an obsolescence built into this because I bought the first generation. I knew that going in, which is why I didn't drop a grand. I only dropped 500 bucks. And when version 3 comes out, when they've not only made it smaller, thinner, faster, in the battery life longer, it'll be a whole generational leap in that technology. That's when the general public runs out and buys this thing. So do you have the stainless steel with the aluminum? Um... No, the sport model is not stainless steel. It's sort of a brushed aluminum. And that's the, and it's not the sapphire crystal. It's not the sapphire crystal. It's the ion glass or something like that. Mm. And it is a rubber band. They call it an elastopolymer type band or something. Uh, The downside to that is that um, I do find that it feels a little sweaty under the band after a while. Yeah. Uh, but the neat thing is, is that they're not discouraging third parties from building straps, which is really helpful because the uh, one that comes with the sport is a $70 band, but you can spend three, five, $700 on an Apple specific brand band. But the, there are adapters you can get for standard watch bands. And so if or when I get tired of this, that's when I'll make the switch. Why did you go with white? Because I thought it was rather iPod-esque. Okay, true. And I I thought that was a neat little nod and a wink to Apple's history in and to itself. Plus, I wear white dress shirts, and I thought that would be a nice compliment to it versus the contrast of going with a black band. Okay. Well, when I finally go and make the plunge, and I haven't decided now, I'm on the fence. Maybe I wait for version two. Uh, because I do have to buy a new notebook, and I'm, I, I'm, I've got my name on a new MacBook, the new, uh, the super thin one. Oh yes, which I could have in a week or so, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's going to take the bank account uh, to places where it doesn't need to go to right now. <laughs> I can't really justify getting both. Although for the fitness applications, I'm really looking forward to seeing what the Apple Watch can do. This thing is bugging me like there's no tomorrow on that front. It will it will notify you that you haven't been standing in X number of minutes, and therefore you really ought to get up lard ass and walk around the room a little bit. See, I need that because I'm sitting in front of screens all day, and I need to be reminded to get up and move around. So it will give you, and the neat thing about the activity app is that, and while I don't really care about it, I um, have been actively keeping an eye on it because I know others do care. And the, the neat thing is, is that you establish a Uh, a daily calorie burn rate, and it will give you uh, constant updates as to how you're doing on it if you want. See, I would like that. I would like that very much. Um, It also indicates all the other stuff that they already do, you know, flights of stairs climbed, all that kind of stuff. Uh, The uh, glances, that's the neat, one of the neat things about it is you, you swipe up from the bottom and then it gives you quick looks at particular apps. Like I've got the weather, the, the calendar, SoundHound is in there. It doesn't function very well, but it's not too bad. And one of them is, is the, the calorie count and the steps and all that. So if you are actually actively inclined, this is probably for you too. Steep learning curve? No, but it's an inconsistent experience I'm finding. There are times when you can you can force tap, which is the extra hard tap, to pull up options. But not all apps use that. Most of them have on-screen buttons. It's probably going to work its way out over time, much like the way the iOS operating system right. consistently created a user experience over the first three years. 
Especially that force tap thing. I mean, the harder that you press it, the more response you get from the app. I mean, that's something that developers are really going to have to wrap their head around. And in the meantime, you wrap your head around the idea that you're dropping 500 to to $1,000 on something that's going to look like a flip phone in three years. Hmm, this is true. Own one of the craptastic mugs of the world's most popular podcast and support the show. You too can use the power of science to hold liquids, both hot or cold. Visit geeksandbeats.com today. You found an awesome iOS Easter egg that apparently everyone's been missing for the past two years. Yeah, this is really cool. You can probably check this out on your new uh, snazzy Apple iPhone. If you look at the icon for voice memos, you'll see uh, a waveform representation. Mm-hmm. No big deal. It's something that you it's it's what you would expect. But uh, somebody was messing around with it, and they realized that that waveform is actually a representation uh, of somebody saying the word Apple. Oh, really? Which is kind of cool. It doesn't do anything as an Easter egg, but it is just one of those small little things that show how much Apple pays attention to detail. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it means absolutely nothing in the grand scheme of things. But I, I looked at that and I thought, well, that's that's kind of cool. If you're going to have a representation of a waveform, you might as well do it right. And, and, and there's an example. There are a lot of little Easter eggs embedded in the uh, iOS and the Mac OS operating systems. Like, for example, the text edit application that comes with uh, all modern Macs uh, has a tiny little notebook with words scrawled on it. The words are actually a letter quoting Apple's Think Different campaign. Oh, see, you know, that's kind of cool. Yeah. There's uh, a, a series of, of keystrokes, and I can't remember what they are. But if you hit them just right, you end up with the Apple... Uh, Apple icon as a piece of text, as a, as a symbol in your, in, your, in your text. The original uh, Mac had an Easter egg that required you to physically open the case to be able to see. Which was? The signatures of everyone who worked on the original 128K Mac. Right, I remember that now. That's yeah. ah, just, just kind of cool. And then there was this other one. I got a... My uh, Lahore, Pakistan uh, correspondent, Wes pointed me to this the other day uh, because he, well, he's, he's a bit of a nerd. He works in a radio station in, in Pakistan. And um, he, he noticed that, see, with Google Maps, one of the things that you can do is you can edit certain aspects of the map. Uh, it's called the map maker function, and it allows users to contribute you know, your local knowledge to Google Maps to make it more user-friendly and, 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 and useful. And someone has uh, f- found a picture of the Android robot. This is someplace in, uh, in, in, in Pakistan. Uh, a picture of the Android robot taking a whiz on the Apple Apple. And uh, it, it was there for about 36 hours until Google heard about it and had the whole thing removed. I, I uh, He notified me on Friday night. I went to look on Saturday morning, and it was gone. A week and a half ago, there was uh, an Edward Snowden in the White House business listing. It was a snowboard shop named Edward Snow's, Edward's Snow Den, with a location changed to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. So I, I suppose you can get into a lot of tomfoolery using Google Maps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess you can. I mean, I don't spend a lot of time with Google Maps. I used to, but I, I don't anymore because I just don't have the time to zoom in on on, on various aspects of well, on maps. I mean, I love maps, 
Um, I used to spend some time scrolling around North Korea just to see what I could find. Taking yourself back to the 80s, where this would have been incredible intel to have this type of technology. Absolutely. And they recently upgraded Google Maps and Google Earth to be have much higher resolution. I uh, freaked out my grandfather, who at the time I think was about 99 or 100 years old, and I, I freaked him out by zooming in on his farm. <laughs> and, and, you know, it, it was to him, it was indistinguishable from magic. It really was. And I did the same thing to my parents because we could, they, they had actually, my small town north of Winnipeg, they had actually sent the Google um, uh, car up and down my, my parents' street, which I thought was absolutely amazing. And we could actually zoom down and go up the driveway, <laughs> which was neat. Uh, you're going to be interested in this. I spent the past weekend test driving new cars. What? No, you? Yes, me even. Uh, we are looking at maybe getting a Nissan Murano. Okay, which is a crossover SUV-ish type vehicle. Very nice. Okay. Exactly. Really nice high-end model. Um, we also tried out the Rogue, which is sort of like the Honda Civic. Yeah, I don't think you want a Rogue. Uh, equivalent. And um, we talked to the guy about the prospect of CarPlay being embedded into the dashboard of the Murano. And he said that there's no guarantee it's going to happen, but it's distinctly possible that you'll be able to upgrade to CarPlay with the existing dashboard system they've got. But you point out on a journalofmusicalthings.com that Android Auto and CarPlay aren't really going to be huge until 2020. Yeah. Now, we took delivery, or my wife took delivery, of a 2015 Honda CRV, and it does have Siri, a Siri in, uh, there's, there's a button. There's a Siri button specifically? Not a specific Siri button, but if you press this button on the steering wheel, you get Siri. Ah. And, uh, I mean, this thing is just loaded with technology. I mean, blind spot indicators, a blind spot camera. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the, the infotainment system in the dashboard is, is absolutely incredible. It doesn't have full CarPlay yet, even though Honda is one of the signatories, the original signatories to the CarPlay system. Uh, and, you know, I was a little disappointed in that because I was hoping to see something. But, uh, yeah, you're probably right. It's going to take – see, what you have to understand is that it takes about seven years for a model, a new automobile or any kind of vehicle from uh, a new iteration to go from design to the showroom. Mm -hmm. So this does this makes sense because when was Siri really when was CarPlay really talked about about 2013, 2012? It doesn't it makes perfect sense that you're not really going to see it roll out in big numbers until 2018, 2019, 2020. And at that point. Then you're going to see this huge uptick because people are going to be interested in having this technology in their dashboards. IHS Automotive uh, says that by 2020, 31 million vehicles are likely to have the Google Auto feature, but about 6 million more will have Apple's CarPlay. And then MirrorLink uh, will be about 17 million. And I don't even know what MirrorLink is. I, I've never heard of MirrorLink and I'm following this. So that's interesting. I have to follow that up. Uh, and it says here, uh, pay particular attention to the note about uh, Chinese drivers' preferences for mobile streaming in their vehicles, which I think is really rather interesting. That will come through not only CarPlay and Android Auto, but everything else. Uh, what is the implications for broadcast radio there? Oh, there's a rabbit hole we're not going down today. Oh, we won't go. We won't go down there right now. But you're right. Um, 
not the car. I mean, I have a 2014 car. You're going to have a 2015, I guess? 2016. 2016. My wife has a 2015. It's probably going to be, honestly, 2018, 2019 models before we see any real integration of Android Auto and CarPlay. I'm just looking forward to having Bluetooth in the dash, man. Oh, that's the best. Cut the cord and go to geeksandbeats.com anytime. You'll get the latest episode and links to the stories the boys are talking about. Geeksandbeats.com. Also available on 8-track and cassette. Last week was all about Star Wars, and I, I bet the little Star Trekian inside you is thrilled to learn that NASA has accidentally created Warp Drive. Yeah, this was really cool. Now, Warp Drive works like this. You create a bubble around your vehicle. Yes. Tell me how Warp Drive works, Professor. You create a bubble around your vehicle, <laughs> and this bubble is outside normal space, and it contracts... Uh, expands at the beginning uh, at the front and contracts at the beginning so this bubble which because it's outside of normal space the normal laws of physics do not apply so in that case you should be able to go faster than the speed of light warp 5 warp 6 warp 7 whatever it is and at the in the beginning when people were talking about this it's a physical impossibility physics don't work it doesn't work this way and if it did you would have to put so much energy into creating this bubble that it would it would never ever ever work and then besides that the with the speed that you would achieve you have to be very careful because then you have to slow down and the amount of energy that would go into slowing you down would be it would be infinitesimal uh, would be would be infinite so uh people have been saying oh, warp drive it's just a, f uh, a figment of gene roddenberry's imagination and every other science fiction writer's imagination when it comes to faster than light travel however NASA has figured out that if you make this bubble vaguely donut-shaped, you get to preserve, you don't have to use as much energy into creating the warp bubble as you would have in previous warp drive theories. So the ship sits in the hole of the donut, uh, moving the space around it to get from point A to point B. Pretty much. NASA and other space agencies have been experimenting with this M-Drive, a thruster engine capable of moving through space without fuel, instead relying on a magnetron to produce microwaves for thrust, writes Amber Healy on geeksandbeats.com. And it contains no moving parts, needs no reaction for a mass, and as they were working on the M-Drive, they fired a laser through its resonance chamber. And what led them to think, oh my God, maybe we're onto something when it comes to warp drive, is that the beam appeared to be traveling faster than the speed of light, something that we had learned from Einstein, that there is no such thing as a faster than light speed. We're now learning that may not be the case at all. There is no such thing than faster than light speed in our universe, in our space. However, the moment you step outside our universe and our space, the physical laws no longer apply. This Alcubierre concept, this idea of this donut-shaped bubble, does not apply or EMC, uh, E equals MC squared, does not apply because it is not in Einstein's physical space. The signature on the M drive looks like what a warp bubble would look like. And uh, according to uh, the article, the math behind the warp bubble apparently matches the interference pattern found in the uh, M drive. And one scientist said that it seems to be an accidental connection. And we were trying to figure out where the thrust might be coming from so they can take this and apply it at the Johnson Space Center on actually getting us into space faster than light. Zephyrin Cockrum lives. And you know what? We're right on schedule 
because I do believe, if you know your Star Trek history, Zephyrin Cochran invented the warp drive in about 2060. And as he was testing the warp drive, the signature of the warp drive was detected by a passing spacecraft full of Vulcans, which is how we ended up having first contact with them. So everything is on schedule. The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers. Opinions are like the Blackberry Bold. You find them everywhere, but nobody's impressed with them. Geeks and Beats reporter Matthew Smith is reporting record store 2015, 12-year sales high. Yeah, and this is getting bigger and bigger every year. From uh, a bunch of guys in Baltimore, which started this as a way to save their stores, this thing has grown into a worldwide phenomenon, and now everybody participates in it. And record labels all over the world participated. And um, I, I talked to some people. I was unable to go to record store this day. I was just absolutely crushed by it because I was suffering from my monkeypox, my, my my horrible respiratory issue, and I couldn't get out of bed. But uh, people turned out in record amounts, and they bought record amounts of physical albums. If you uh, look back at the, I have the, um, uh, the data from... Um, uh, music sales, and this is just sound scan data. It was it was substantially higher than uh, previous years, so that's excellent. Matthew Smith reports that uh, Nielsen is telling us that uh, five hundred thirty-two thousand album scans were recorded after Record Store Day twenty fifteen was completed. Almost twenty-two percent of all physical album sales, and almost twelve percent of overall sales for the previous week, and that it was the equivalent of doing as many as 15 regular days of business in that 12-hour day. Yeah, people bought, uh, the biggest seller was uh, Get Behind Me Satan, the vinyl version released by Third Man Records from the White Stripes. Uh, Metallica, No Life to Leather, which was their original demo tape, was the second best seller. Uh, Run the Jewels and their Bust No Moves album was number three. David Bowie um, Changes was uh, number four, and The Black Keys with Meet Me in the City. I don't remember that one but anyway black keys was 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 number five so um that's what people bought and uh i talked to a couple of people who run record stores and they say yeah we were just jammed all day this is just brilliant Uh, looking forward to the next version of record store day which will be black friday in november and then next year which uh, will be bigger than this year Geeks and Beats writer Shane Alexander reports Elton John may be singing a sad song as someone stolen his iconic heart-shaped sunglasses uh, that are worth about $2,000 from the Memphis, Tennessee Rock and Soul Museum. What, what were they doing in the Soul Museum? He's, he's got a, you've listened to Crocodile Rock. There's got to be some soul in there. Well, okay. <laughs> uh, apparently, uh, employees noticed the, glass, noticed the glasses were missing. The cops were called. The case was left behind, uh, but uh, apparently thieves had a necessary set of tools tools to remove the item from the glass holder without anybody knowing of this on the 45th anniversary of when Elton John began his first world tour in April of 1970. You know, I wonder how the Hard Rock Cafe manages to keep all their stuff under lock and key because they have one of the largest rock and roll memorabilia collections in the world. I have a friend who went to the vault in London, and this is where they store all the stuff that's not in all the restaurants around the world. Mm Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, there's a Jimi Hendrix guitar, there's some David Bowie costumes. It's just like, you can't believe what's in there. So I wonder how they managed to keep track of everything, because they got some very, very valuable stuff. For certainly more than, you know, worth more than a pair of sunglasses for $2,000. 
London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. We've got the world's worst intern program. It's the program where you as an intern pay us to work on the show. One dollar an episode. You don't actually do anything to make the show happen. And all we do is take your money. Scott Coates, Stefan Dubord, Ian Long, Randy Redekop, Bill French. Uh, they are our most recent interns on the big show who have opened their wallet to the tune of one dollar per episode to help keep the show up and running. Ian Long actually doubled his to make it two bucks for every single episode. So we want to thank you very much for being a, a part of the big show. So what is this episode worth to these people? We are going to make about 250 bucks, at least. On this episode? On this one particular episode. Holy crap. How much have we got in the bank? We've got about 1500 bucks. Wow, that... Uh... That writer's party is going to be a good one. Exactly. That's uh, what we're doing. We're plowing it right back into the show to make it uh, a bigger and better show than it ever was before. So we appreciate your support of the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Uh, you can go to geeksandbeats.com, click the support the show link to help keep the show on the air itself. Uh, we had uh, one, last week, we had Stephen Lung as our uh, a big time contributor to the show as a co producer because he donated $25 as Devin Arn has this week as well. And so they actually not only get their names mentioned on the big show, but also we send them a link to the album art that they can print off frame and put it in their parents' basement. This is fantastic. Now, people are actually starting to notice this show because we did talk about this organization in the United States that um, people may know about uh, who have asked us to come on board. Oh, we're not going to talk about this now, are we? No, 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 we can't. We can't. But well, let's just say that, that, that we have a real chance to have another distribution channel here. Ooh. You're listening to Geeks and Beats on iTunes, Stitcher, and the Bell Media Radio Network. And these children that you spit on as they try to change their worlds are immune to your consultations. They're quite aware of what they're going through. Changes. So I'm about a year past my musical midlife crisis, according to you. I really love all the data that we're getting back from streaming music services. For example, Spotify bought a company called The Echo Nest, and The Echo Nest does nothing but dig into the data of the users of Spotify, and they can create all these interesting pictures. Things become very clear that were never clear before. For example, this idea of a musical midlife crisis. Now, when most of us... I don't know about you, because you're a weirdo, but <laughs> the, most of us have a sweet spot for music, and it's usually from about the ages of 14 to 24, from when we get into high school till when life really begins to intrude on our adolescence. Music becomes very, very important to us. We use music as a way to project our identity to the rest of the world. So we buy a lot of music, we go to a lot of shows, we listen to a lot of music. It is absolutely everything to us. It is a vital part of our lives between 14 and 24. After we get into things like getting married, uh, real estate, mortgages, jobs, and other things that grown-ups have to do, we tend to leave a lot of our musical passions behind, or at least they become sublimated to some of these other things that take over. 
until we hit the age of 42. Right. That is our musical midlife crisis age, according to the data gleaned from Spotify numbers by the Echo Nest. That's when we think, oh, man, we used to be so hip and cool. We used to be really in touch with what's happening with music. Uh, maybe it's time to go back and, and see what's and to reclaim that part of my life. So at 42, a lot of people begin to get into new music again. New music, not not the music of your youth. You don't go back to that. You actually start listening to the what the kids today are listening to, and that's what makes it <laughs> a, a, a midlife crisis because you're trying to reclaim youth? Exactly, because that period of time, 14 to 24, that becomes your favorite music for the rest of your life. Every generation has a biological right to believe that the music of their youth is the greatest music of all time. And you will always go back to this music when you need comfort, when you need inspiration, when you need, um, you know, anything, because it was such an important part of your life and will become, will be forever the most important music to you. But then when you get to 42, you think, well, man, you know, I'm, I, I'm not old. I'm not stuck in the past. I can, I'm just as hip as I used to be. So you begin to buy new music. You begin to try, try to understand what the kids are into. You try to recapture your lost youth through music. And that goes on for a little while. And then you just give up again. So I have to now learn who Wiz Khalifa, Ed Sheeran, Rihanna, Kanye West, and OMI are. Yes, yes. Your musical taste reaches its maturity, says the Equinist, at around 35. At 35, you will be the most musically erudite person that you will ever be in your life. Sweeping generalization here. Then you get to 42, and then you briefly go back to what's hot on the charts and what's hot with the kids. It's a fascinating story. I'll post the link, and you can read all about it. Of course, unless you're Canadian, because the data proves that we actually do like Nickelback. Okay, now we have to be very careful about this. There's a company out of Chicago run by a guy named Kurt Hansen. I know Kurt very well. He runs a company called AccuRadio, which is a streaming internet radio service. And um, what they are interested in the big data generated by their users as well. And what they managed to do a little while ago is go back and figure out since 2000, which is about when Nickelback entered mainstream consciousness, they went back to try and figure out exactly uh, who is listening to Nickelback via the AccuRadio service. And a couple of weeks ago, they published a map of the United States showing where most of the streams for Nickelback songs went to. And Nevada was a very, very big Nickelback streamer. In Canada, however, the biggest streamer is Ontario. Yes, it is Ontario. Now, now what's at the bottom of the list? Well, wait, 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 wait. Let's just go. Let's, the reason <laughs> it was Ontario is because, naturally, it's the biggest province. So you would expect most of the streaming to be done in Ontario. Now, you have to understand that the Nickelback is a very big band outside of large urban centers and the east and west coast of the United States. They're a very big band in places like, you know, Winnipeg and Regina and uh, Calgary and, and wherever else. Uh, so you would expect that Ontario would have, because just by virtue of its population, the most plays. Okay. BC was number two. Alberta was number three. At the very bottom 
is Nunavut. With only 27 plays, but only 27 people live in Nunavut. Well, that's the point. So we have to be very careful with these numbers. You know, you can't say that, you know, I got this chart here from CBC. It says that Canadian provinces that secretly love Nickelback and, you know, Ontario loves Nickelback more than anybody else. Well, I mean, let's just prorate everything in terms of population and, and let's see. So but but the point, I guess the point that they're trying to make is that, um, listen, kind of like what you like, there's that old joke that says, when I die, the first thing I want you to do is clear my browser history. That's not a joke. <laughs> well, OK, it's not a joke. Uh People, the data doesn't lie, people. There are lots of folks across the Fruited Plain that willingly and regularly stream Nickelback. I would like to see what Spotify and RDO have in their big data. But uh, AccuRadio, there you go. You've been outed. I don't really understand the big pushback against Nickelback in the first place. It's not particularly my taste in music, but there certainly is a toe-tapping component to it. I don't understand it either. I, I mean, the amount of hate that's directed towards this band is disproportionate to what they do. Uh, I, I don't get it. Um, but it seems to be centered with critics and in large urban centers, which you know, have declared them to be highly uncool. Uh, bottom line is that they're a really good, you know, rock pop band that writes some very catchy, anthemic, Friday night, let's get hammered songs. We discussed in previous episodes what constitutes a good song, and you pointed out that the algorithms that are used, actual artificial intelligence algorithms used to analyze music today, have concluded that repetition is the key to a successful and popular pop song. Correct. Does that play out with Nickelback? Well, they have good hooks that repeat themselves the required number of times per song. They don't wait too long before you get into the hook and the chorus. So, yeah, I mean, they're well, very well-constructed songs. And, you know, if you're a guy in Saskatoon and you've worked really hard in the potash mines over the last couple of weeks and you're home on leave and you got your pickup truck, I mean, a song like Burn It to the Ground is, is exactly what you want to hear. And maybe I haven't gone through my musical midlife crisis yet because this story that we've got here on geeksandbeats.com about earworms being that music that you can't get out of your head, I'm not familiar with Take Me to the Church by Hozier. How can you not? Seriously, you haven't heard Take Me to Church by Hozier? I'm more concerned that I made sure I pronounced the name of the band correctly. It's a guy. It's a guy from Ireland. You've never heard... Oh, seriously? Tell me that's his last name, because that's a terrible parent no, no, if no, no, that's his first name. name. You've never heard this song? I've never heard this song. It's one of the biggest hits of the last six months. And you can't get it out of your head, apparently. Uh, no, I've had... Uh... I've had the, the, the loop of the chorus going through my head. And I've had a couple of other songs going through my head recently. And I don't have any chewing gum. This, and the reason that I bring this up, is because chewing gum, according to this new study, this is out of the UK, says that if you do have a song that's going through your head and you need to flush it out, one of the things that will do it, apparently, is chewing gum. Don't know why. 
but it works. Well, hang on, hang on. We've already figured this out on the big show. We were looking at that scientific study that said if you wanted to get an earworm out of your head, the solution was Sudoku. Yes. What happened to that? Oh, that's fine. That works too. The premise being that you need to distract your brain with some mental math that's not complicated. You don't need to be doing uh, significant algorithms. You just need simple arithmetic to get your brain focused on something else for just a brief moment. And that is enough to make the earworm pass. Because as we know, and as we now know, because we've mentioned this Hoosier fellow, that um, we've now infected other people with this song in their heads as well. And it didn't get it out of ours. You can't pass on an earworm to get it out of your head. You need to actually do some mental math. What's the chewing gum Solution. I don't know. It uh, chewing gum works by interfering with your inner speech, which apparently takes your mind off that loop of music that's running through your head. It's not foolproof. There are people for whom earworms um, are are much more ingrained and much more stubborn, and some are so debilitating that you need um, OCD controlling drugs to take care of them. But if you don't have a Sudoku puzzle nearby. Pick up a uh, stick of juicy food. Try chewing that. Maybe that works out. There's a, I'll, I'll post a link to it, and you can see the results of the study and how it all actually worked. And it did okay. I'm looking at the study right here. This is uh, reported in the Daily Mail, which we have to always point out is often referred to as the Daily Fail because they take remarkable leaps uh, in uh, logic. But the study was carried out by scientists at the University of Reading. Or is it Redding? Redding, Redding, Redding. Thank you. Uh, and in the research, 98 volunteers were played the catchy tunes Play Hard by David Guetta. Guetta, yeah. Oh, boy. we. And a payphone by Maroon 5. Those guys are still around? Boy, I really need to... Give me your phone and let me look and see what's in it. We gotta, we gotta fix you up. But anyway. I figured that the, the earworm solution with chewing gum... At least when it came to Nickelback, you just put the chewing gum in your ears and you're fine. <laughs> Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.